I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Bob Gramig, a partner at Holland and Knight and leader of the firm's corporate M&A and securities practice. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. Very happy to be here, David. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, a little bit about how you got into the law and ended up practicing M&A. Then the arc, not just of your career and that of your firm, but how some of that reflects changes in big law generally. And then a little bit about your practice and a deal or two you've worked on recently. And then finally, your work with the Florida Chamber of Commerce. So to start, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a lawyer. Well, I grew up in a smaller town at the time, Melbourne, Florida, which is not far from Cape Canaveral. Went up to undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania and then went to law school at Harvard. It was Oliver Wendell Holmes had the quote that when asked by a law student where he should go to practice law, he replied, go back to your home if you have one. So I headed back to Florida. And although I was a clerk on the year that the 5th and 11th circuits split back in that 1981 timeframe, which was an interesting time because at that point, the 5th circuit had, I believe, 26 judges. And you can imagine what a show it was in New Orleans when they would have these in-bank hearings. But then they split the circuit and I got an interesting perspective on things from that. But then I returned to Florida and Holland and Knight at that time was sort of a, still is, of course, an institution in Florida. It had been founded in 1889, had a lot of illustrious partners over the years. And so it was sort of a natural place to come, especially in North and Central Florida at the time, as we were at that point, really starting to fully integrate our South Florida operations with operations in the other part of the state. And what was your practice like early in your career? Well, it was significantly different. I remember I started, my bill rate was $60 an hour. Of course, it was in the days before there was any fax machines or any FedEx even. We had Telex, which was not a really very satisfactory way of delivering information back and forth. In retrospect, it's amazing we were able to get things done the way we did. I think to some extent, you certainly did not make gratuitous changes. You weren't changing wills to shells and things like that in the third and fourth drafts of documents like sometimes you see now. But I'd say the deals at that point in Florida... We tended to represent local clients, some of whom were rather large. And then we did a lot of local council work on financings and things like that. It was a different mix than it is now. And the pace was somewhat different because you never knew what the mail would bring on any particular day with transactions you were working on. And the other piece of it, which is now when you look back on it, kind of quaint in a way is, of course, everybody tended to assemble for these deals for days and days on a time because it was the only efficient way of really getting documents done. 
as opposed to what we have now where most deals, you never even see the lawyers on the other side other than through uh, Zoom. And you've mentioned when you joined your firm, you were still integrating your North and Central Florida offices with your South Florida offices. But you know, over the first half of your career, the firm started to expand as many firms did in the 90s and especially the late 90s. Tell us about that process and some of the growing pains that a lot of firms faced. Well, I think outside of maybe a small handful of markets, probably it was a universal situation that firms felt all over the country. Our initial expansion, I guess, was you know, to integrate our South Florida and sort of Central and North Florida which was not easy to do at the time. I mean, I think we've managed to, perhaps uniquely in the state, really manage to really be a force in all our regions. But it took a lot of work and it was challenging. Then we began to move out of state. And certainly we learned a lot over the years. I think we managed to successfully expand out of Florida and expand nationwide and number of places around the world now. But especially in the early days, it wasn't easy. There is kind of a secret sauce as to how you do it, I think. But you only get there by trial and error. And it's something that I think challenges many firms even today. And we did encounter a lot of problems over the years. I would say our current managing partner took over in 2008, I believe. And really, from that point on, we were able to rectify a lot of the issues that had come up. For example, we have had no debt, essentially, for the past 12 or 13 years. You know, that's something that's very attractive to laterals, because that does give you a sense of a certain amount of financial stability that I believe you know, some of our competitors don't operate that way. But it's one thing that we did learn is that when you look at many of the problems that some firms have faced, debt's really almost at the core of it. When too much of that's undertaken and you get into a situation where you get into a tailspin. So we learned a lot over those years. And I think you know we will continue to expand, but I think we've gotten a better formula for doing it now. How would you compare opening a new office and bringing on a partner or a group of partners? How do those two means of growth differ and how are they similar in terms of how you think about it? Well, let me talk about the similarities first. The the similarities are you have to have an integration process, especially at a firm this size. Now, I think we have a very structured, very intentional process to integrate, whether it's an office or whether it's an individual lateral that comes in. We really make an effort to get people together and to figure out how we can multiply the, uh, the contacts that that individual or that group has 
to expand their book of business and expand the firm's book of business. So in that regard, it's similar. Now, in terms of when you bring in a lateral, a single lateral, again, that person or persons, a small group, typically they're located in one office. Typically, then much of the effort can be based upon getting them integrated into the office. And then we have a practice group structure on a nationwide basis that's focusing on the practice group. But there's a good deal of emphasis just at the local level. When you bring in a merger, for example, the Thompson and Knight merger in Texas, we already had a Dallas office and a Houston office and an Austin office. But those offices were small in comparison to the TK group. And in that case, there's local efforts, but also you want to really bind that geographic group with the rest of the firm. So great deal of effort on the practice group side to bind in the lawyers from Thompson and Knight, for example, which I think we've done a pretty good job at. And every time you do a transaction or bring in a lateral, you tend to learn from things that you could do better. And that's something that we pride ourselves on. We always try to learn from our mistakes as to what we could do better. So it's never easy, especially when you have a group as large as the Thompson and Knight folks. And, you know, they're a storied name in Texas and had a national reputation. So you really want to make sure you keep that and you burnish that and you artfully get everyone together. And in that particular case, we're very pleased at how everything has turned out. Describe the relationship between your firm's growth and the evolution of your practice, as obviously you've been involved in firm management, but you also have a very active practice. And what impetus did your experience in your practice give you to believe that your firm needed to expand? Well, I think a couple of things, you know, the practice benefited certainly from just being in Florida. I mean, there is a lot to be said about being in the right geography at the right time. And folks in Texas, California, and other places certainly can attest to that. I mean, there are certainly markets in parts of the country and some of the Midwest and some of the Northeast that are very challenging. You know, if the economy is shrinking, you're having negative population growth. In order to get additional business, you pretty much have to take it from somebody. Whereas if you're sitting in a market like this, business naturally comes down. And of course, it's sort of cascading in this direction right now. But we had a very strong position in Florida in the 80s and much earlier than that. So we were in a very good position to be on people's shortlist when they came down. Sometimes it would not be for all of their work, but we had a big rate advantage over a lot of firms in different parts of the country. So that was an advantage to us. And we had our core base of corporate clients that continued to do deals. And as these clients got bigger, many of them, you know, for example, a Jabel Circuit would start doing deals overseas or L3 Harris in the aeronautics and communications industry. 
would start doing very sophisticated deals. And we sort of came along with that. And the other thing is, as we got larger, it helped us with uh, credibility with investment bankers. So we did a lot of work as underwriters counsel on various IPOs for various banks. Now, Raymond James, of course, has been a long-term client of ours, but other major investment banks such as Baird and others, we also enjoy very good relationships with. And so over the years, we gained credibility as our size increased, our name recognition increased. It became better for us. Uh, We became a better fit for some of the investment banks. And then the investment banks also helped us as well in, in terms of they thought we brought a good value proposition to some of their clients. So overall, as we got larger, the relationships with investment banks particularly, but also you know just commercial banks as well, all of that continued to develop and helped us into bigger and better deals. And then in terms of managing the firm, how long did it take you as a group to realize internally you needed a much different infrastructure than you would have had when you started practicing? And then how did you think about developing that infrastructure? Well, it was a very gradual process. I think you need to remember that if you go back into the 80s, what did people worry about? I mean, the lawyers had just come out of a very bad situation with the economy and the end of the Jimmy Carter era. And, you know, high inflation, you had sort of stagflation, actually, all sorts of economic issues. The focus was always on cost. The focus was always on minimizing expenses. And that was a hard thing over the course of the 80s that began to shift. But it remained sort of ingrained, I think, in most firms into the 90s for a good bit. And so there was always a hesitancy about adding internal staff. You know, do you actually need an internal real estate person, even though you were starting to set up additional offices? IT was always a challenge. And the expenditures, how much could you expend on these new computers? You know, those ginormous things that we would have back in those days. That was a real hesitancy to spend too much money because the milieu that essentially everybody had grown up in was that you wanted to save your way to prosperity. Ultimately, over the decades, really, it shifted. And we realized that by expending money wisely and making the correct investments, that was the best way to get to prosperity. But it was a slow process to get there. As you look out over the next five or 10 years, what do you see as the most significant challenges that law firms face? I think automation is going to be a huge uh, challenge. Cybersecurity, obviously, is going to be a huge issue for all American businesses, all worldwide businesses. But let's get into the legal side of things. And I think the automation is going to be the biggest challenge for us. Because as the automation gets better, I mean, I think it's clear we're going to need a lot less associates because I think the initial drafting of, let's say you got a $10 billion merger agreement, the initial drafting of that is going to be automated, I've got to believe. 
you know, they are going to get, it's not there yet, the technology, it may not be there in five years, but it's coming where that artificial intelligence will do a better job than the associates can do. And you're already seeing that to a significant degree in litigation, in the discovery process, where, again, I think our litigators would probably tell you that artificial intelligence is not perfect by any means, but it keeps getting better. And we're going to see that in a real serious way on the corporate side. And that's going to affect everybody's business model significantly, I've got to believe. Has it started to affect business models even now? I mean, it seems like a partner to associate ratios, if you look out 15 years, have come down since 2005, 6, 7. I think that there is an increasing resistance at the client level to pay for junior associates. That's not really news. That's been there a while. But I do think that part of it is driven by technology and the fact that uh, partners can certainly do more. And, you know, realistically, even myself, I found during the pandemic when it wasn't a situation where you necessarily had an associate as you typically would pre-pandemic days, a bunch of them right down the hallway, and you could have somebody look at something quickly. You started to look at some of that stuff yourself because it was just easier if nobody was around and somebody didn't pick up the phone. So I think you probably do see a little bit more of the partners doing it themselves. You know, the tools are better all the time and to expedite that kind of research Partners have a better sense of what they need to look at. The unfortunate part of it is, you know, it just makes training a little bit harder because back in the day, if you're an associate and you had these research projects, you not only learned about the item you were looking at, but you also just picked up a lot of tangential knowledge just by doing the research. And I think a lot of that is probably going to be slipping away from us. Tell us a little bit about your practice, what you're seeing now, the recent deals you found particularly interesting. Well, I think that we're still seeing a good amount of transactional activity. Certainly, I would say there's signs out there and everybody talks these days about a slowdown. I would expect there probably will be one, but at least in in our Tampa office and in our sort of north and central Florida offices, we mostly represent institutional acquirers. Sometimes they'll buy and they may sell a division, but we are you know, more on the strategic side. We've got a huge private equity practice in our South Florida operations, and I think they're still seeing deals. And we also have a big reps and warranties insurance practice. All of those are going well right now, but I would say you can get the sense that things may slow. Recently, well, we just announced a deal the other day for Marine Max. Interesting in the sense that they will acquire soon IACY Yachts, which is essentially a marina operation. And they had roughly 20 marinas around the world, three continents. It was quite the 
challenge to deal with lawyers in all those jurisdictions. But it's also amazing, though, how easy it is, in a sense, to coordinate 18 different jurisdictions these days. It's almost inconceivable. What do you think? 20 years ago, how hard that would have been. But it's amazing. Everybody can get on a Zoom call. You work through issues. It was fascinating. And another recent deal that was interesting. And it's amazing to me how virtually all our deals have a significant international component. We sold for Sela Realty Trust, a REIT that's a reporting act company here in Tampa, the sale of their data centers to Maple Tree, a Singapore operation. And that was about $1.3 billion with uh, numerous data centers scattered around. And as CELA reconcentrated its efforts into the medical space on the REIT side. So there's a lot of interesting transactions out there. We've got a couple of public offerings in the works on the security side. So business keeps flowing and we'll keep our fingers crossed that the rest of the year remains reasonably strong. And then finally, tell us about your work with the Florida Chamber of Commerce. Well, I've been on the board for, well, I want to say about 13, 14 years, something like that. I was chairman for two years in there. The Florida Chamber of Commerce is a very powerful organization in Florida in that it really, unlike some chambers that are weaker, it's got a strong membership base and actively proposes pro-business policies and works hard to do that, to implement those. And so it has a significant outreach to our state government, local governments even. And we have a lot of interaction with the state government. You know, Holland and I traditionally, uh, Spessard Holland was a senator and a governor. Ron DeSantis, the current governor, was a Holland and Knight person. Ashley Moody, our attorney general, she was a Holland and Knight person. We've had a lot of connections with the governments, both in Florida and in Washington. And the Florida Chamber does do a lot of interaction and actually influences policy, I think, in a very positive way, in the sense that we have a set of principles. We try to enunciate those principles to leaders in our state. And I think they listen to the chamber as a voice of practicality and reason and as we march forward. And we we actually have a foundation, uh, for example, that spends a lot of time on trying to improve things like education in zip codes around the state where scores are underperforming. And we try to get businesses to adopt schools and come up with ways of bringing up performance in some of the underperforming areas of the state. So we've got a pretty broad mission at Florida Chamber. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. David, really appreciate it. Thank you. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.